What would go through your mind if you go into the family business and have a real hard conversation with your father, the founder of the business and say, I can't keep doing business like this. I can't keep living like this. I'm going to have to leave. And before you even get out of the door, your father says, no, I'm going to leave. And by leave, I mean, leave the business, leave your mother, leave you, because I've been living an alternate life for many years. That's what my guests on this episode of Unbeatable went through. You're going to hear Matt Lesser's incredible story and how he went spiraling downhill and then finally got the help that he needed. And now he's turned his life around. Matt's got a great story. And I can't wait for you to hear it on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Matt, thanks for taking a little time out of an insanely busy holiday season to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. My pleasure, Jeff. I've been looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah. Um, so holidays are just around the corner. Um, you're, you got a family. Uh, what's the favorite tradition? What's the thing that you're really looking forward to this year? Oh man, I only get to pick one. <laughs> well, okay. You can take two or three, but I just really want to know what's at the top of your list, man. Uh, honestly, the top of my list is, um, we just love, uh, Christmas Eve is our favorite time together. It's just our family. Um, my, uh, my oldest is coming home this year, which is, it's always touch and go. He's in nice. the movie industry. And so yeah. he'll be here and he uh, got engaged, uh, three weeks ago. Whoa, so congrats. We're on, yeah. So we're on the verge of having our first, um, daughter-in-law or any in-law for that matter, uh, join our family. And so, uh, so we're just, we're especially excited, excited this year uh, to be together as a family. So, um, so I'd say Christmas Eve is the highlight for us. Um, so from that perspective. Yeah, I think it is for our family too. Would, since it's just you guys on Christmas Eve, is there anything special that you do that day that every year, Christmas Eve, everybody knows we're going to do this thing? Yeah, so we have a um, we have a list of about five or six. Uh, seems to be growing every year. We might be up to eight now. I don't remember of our favorite appetizers. And so we don't make a meal. We just make appetizers. And so everybody gets to put, everybody gets to pick one. And then we have a handful that we do every single year. And we have done that for I I did that growing up. And so I've done it most of my life. And we adopted that as a family when my wife and I got married. And we've carried it on to this day. And now the kids love it because sometimes literally that's the only time we will eat that particular food the entire year. So I love the fact that you don't do a big, huge spread on Christmas Eve. Let's just keep it easy and do our favorite thing on Christmas Eve. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we love it. You already, uh, so Matt, the only reason I'm asking you this question, you already answered it, the question that I was about to get to, and it was about growing up traditions. So Man, I want people to hear the story of what your childhood was like. I want to hear I want people to hear the story about what it was like when you stepped into the family business with your father. But what we're going to camp on in just a few minutes is the earth-shattering revelation that you learned when you stepped into this world with your father. 
So let's just roll the tape back a little bit before you learned about your father having multiple families and, and kind of an entirely different life uh, at the same time that he was, you know, your father. Um, so let's roll the tape back a little bit and talk about your childhood growing up. You know, what was it like? Um, where'd you grow up? What was mom and dad like and family like? Yeah, no, happy to. So um, growing up, I, uh, my, when I was born, I was actually, my family was from uh, Lake Forest, Illinois. My dad was a youth pastor and he was going to seminary at the time. And so, um, so we moved from there to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, actually, when I was, when I was two. Where Lived it's there so for... much warmer than, than Illinois, right? <laughs> Let's go up north, farther north. Right. Um, so lived there until I was four and then we moved to Northeast Indiana. And, uh, and so I grew up spent basically from four until I was, I think, 21, uh, and grew up in a very small, I mean, we're talking 700 people. So everybody All knew right. everybody's business. It yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, very small lake community. And so my childhood growing up was, uh, largely in and on the water. And so I loved it, you know, fishing, swimming, skiing. Um, and then in the wintertime, we actually had, you know, real winter back then. Um, we'd play spend a lot of time on the ice when, uh, during the wintertime. And so, um, so I have, I actually have very fond memories, um, until I became a teenager. And, um, when I, when I hit my teenage years, um, my dad began traveling actually a little before then, but he began traveling, uh, a lot and, uh, to Florida. Um, he bought a business down there. And so it started out that, you know, it was a week a month and then it was two and then it was three and then it was um, like every other month and then it was every two months. And then uh, and then it just that, that became our reality. And so uh, my dad and I began to butt heads um, pretty seriously. And uh, my youngest brother was born. Uh, it, largely, it was uh, not planned. And um, and I became almost like dad. In fact, until he was probably two um, he called me dad and, uh, your he just brother called you dad because he saw more of you than he did his own father. He did. Yeah. And I spent more time with him. I cared for him. Um, I loved him, man. He's my little brother. And so, um, it might've, he might've been three. I don't know. But anyway, eventually he did talk to my, he talked to my, um, he figured out that my, I'm not his dad and my, my, my dad's his dad. And, um, but it was a, it was a very, um, it was a challenging, challenging time. And so, I, um, I didn't know well, what was going on. I mean, we had some suspicions that things weren't right. I mean, obviously my mom and dad, their marriage was, uh, it was in a lot rougher shape than us kids knew. Um, I mean, how could it not be when you're, <laughs> when you're gone that much? When you're, when he's um, gone for 70, 80% of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so then, but I didn't think much about it. I mean, I did, but I didn't, it was one of those things I was busy in school and, um, so I, I spent a year, um, going into my freshman year of high school, I got a, a very rare blood disease and, um, and I wound up spending the year, a year literally in the hospital. And so I had treatments and they could Wait keep me second. alive. You spent an entire year of high school in the hospital? Pretty much. Yep. Wow. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't straight. I mean, I got to home, yeah, go sure, home at but times, I mean, but back and forth, it was in and out of the hospital. Back and forth. Yep. Yeah. And I was, and I was on um, full restriction. So I wasn't allowed to do sports. I mean, I was, the thing that really was um, troubling to me was that I had uh, growing up until my, about my seventh or eighth grade, about my seventh grade year, 
I was overweight. I was, I was the kid who was always picked last on the, on the, uh, in gym and all these things. And finally I decided, you know what? I want to be in shape. And so I lost the weight. I got in shape. In fact, I went from being the slowest kid on anything that I was in to one of the fastest. And here I was, I was going to start varsity in soccer my freshman year because I'd gotten pretty good and, uh, and I, I couldn't even go to school. And so my freshman year, I was, um, my mom actually homeschooled me working with the school. The school is actually great to work with. And because I was getting treatments and the treatments would make me extremely ill and blah. And it was just a, um, it was a, it was a very tough year. Um, and during that year, um, uh, my dad was actually around. And so it was, it was, uh, almost like a family reunion kind of a thing, but then, um, and it was a, it was a very growing time for me. Uh, I spent the first six months of, of my illness, um, quite frankly, angry because, uh, I'd worked my tail off and was, was, I felt like I was missing yeah, out and it felt like it wasn't fair and all those varsity things. soccer team. Yeah, sure. Yep. And, um, and then about halfway through, I had this, um, I, you know, it was almost like a, an epiphany or a divine revelation. And, um, and I met God and that changed the entire, uh, perspective of my illness from there forward. You know, people asked me, it literally was a middle of the night experience. And, um, people asked me, it was like, well, were you healed that night? And I said, no, I was not physically healed, but my soul was healed and my heart was healed. And it changed my perspective from there forward. And, um, and when I finally did go, when I was finally released, um, I was restored to health literally almost a year to the date from the time I was diagnosed. It was really interesting. Um, and I could go back to life. And so, um, but during that time, like I said, it was, it was interesting because my family was together, which we really hadn't been together much. But as soon as I was released, it went almost immediately went back to the way it was. Um, and so finished high school. Uh, I'll stop there. Anything you want to ask further about that well, before I so move on? Well, so are you saying that when you got basically healthy and, and left the hospital, dad bolted again, and you didn't see him much after that? He's down in Florida. You and your mom and your little brother are living up in Indiana after you get out of the hospital. But while you're in the hospital and very unhealthy, dad's around? Because that's just weird. You got it. Okay. I got to know a little bit more about this. Before we go on, tell me what happened halfway through that year when you had an encounter with God? Um, yeah, sure. So um, for the first six or eight months, um, I would get a treatment literally weekly. The first part, it was more than that, but it went to, it went to weekly treatments. Oftentimes the, the cadence was treatment up all night, uh, terrible headache and vomiting. And then um, the next day it would start to subside and I'd have about five good days before I did the whole thing over again. It and sounds so, like you're going um, through chemo is what it sounds like. It was a, it was a, uh, it was chemo like it was not, it, did, it yeah. was not a chemo product. It was a blood product, but it was not chemo. Uh -huh. um, but it did affect the consistency of my blood, which gave me terrible headaches. And so what I learned, what we learned over time is I had to drink a bunch of water. Literally, I was drinking, I, if I drank two gallons of water during my treatment, I wouldn't get sick, but I was pee all the time. So, <laughs> so that's a trade-off. <laughs> two gallons of water. Yeah. Yeah. This is a human camel that we're talking about. Right. <laughs> right. So. Um, so anyway, it was a, um, it was a, my treatment day. And then that night, same routine, ill. So it was literally um, 2.30 in the morning. And I only know that because there was a clock um, on the wall uh -huh. opposite my bed. And so I'm cl climbing back in the bed after I was in the restroom. And, and I literally had this thought. And the thought was this, Matt, here you are, angry, angry at God, blaming him for this. And he's the one person that can actually heal you. 
what are you thinking? And so literally in that dark moment, I was alone that night. My family had gone home. Mom, mom and dad would often stay with me, but I was alone that night. And so, so literally I just said that night I was, I was in the hospital Yeah. and I literally said, God, I'm sorry. I've been angry at you and you're the one person that can actually heal me outside of this you know, medication. And so um, I'm done. I'm done being angry. I'm done fighting. And I give my life to you, whatever that means. I wasn't sure what it all meant, quite frankly. I just prayed that prayer and I went to sleep. And from there forward, Jeff, my 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 mindset about everything, I didn't, I'm not going to say it flipped like a switch, but it changed dramatically. It changed dramatically. At that point, I realized, okay, you know what? There's a reason to this. I don't know what it is. You know, I may, I may never know, or I might not know for years or decades later, um, but there's a reason for this. I don't believe this is an accident. Well, it's fascinating that you would say this because I have met, I can't, I've lost count of the number of people that something like you're describing happened to them. They got really angry with God and they had some degree of faith. And this event, this health thing that you're talking about was the reason they walked away from their faith completely and want nothing to do with it, even years or decades later. It's fascinating to me that your story is basically the opposite in the middle of what would what would normally make people very mad at God. I didn't do anything to deserve this air quotes. Um, you realize, hey, uh, God, I'm sorry. And here I am. I'm yours. And man, it's also incredible. It's actually beautiful, man, to hear about the difference that that moment made, not just in your health, but in your future. So let's fast forward to dad. Um, when do you step into the, what is the family business? When do you step into the family business? When do you decide that that's where you're headed next? So when we moved to Indiana, we moved here because my dad bought into an oil distributorship and it was focused primarily on convenience stores, gasoline and diesel fuel, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of oils. And so, um, so literally I, I, from about the time I was four until uh, until I stepped in, I didn't know anything but, you know, business ownership and, you know, it consumed our lives. And so, um, but that's all I knew. And so when I went to college, I didn't know anything different. I studied business because I wanted to, I thought that was my path. And so I did. So I was one of these weird kids. When I started college, I knew exactly what I wanted to study. I wanted two majors, two minors, and I knew exactly what they were. And I did not deviate <laughs> the entire time. So awesome. Um, yeah. So I finished college. Um, but I realized something my senior year, I realized, uh Oh, I don't want to work with dad because it's not going to work. And because I'm, first of all, I'm not going to travel like he does. I'm not going to go back and forth. Uh, cause we, we had businesses in Indiana and Florida at the time. Now, Florida one was a little bit different. It was a separate ownership structure. And I can talk about that in a minute, but, um, and so, but after I graduated, I needed a job. And so I worked for him. And so about a year later, a year and two months to be exact, um, I went in and said, dad, this isn't working. And one of us needs to go. It's probably not going to be you because you own the stock. And so I'm leaving. And, and Jeff, I had planned to go to grad school and I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to study. I considered going into ministry. So I thought we'd go to seminary. Um, you know, my wife and I were just like, you know, don't know where we're going to go here. So, <laughs> so wait a second. You were already married when you went into dad in the family business, just you and dad and said, Hey, this isn't working. One of the two of us has to go. And I already yep. know how this thing is going to go down. Yeah. At that so point, you... my wife, so my wife and I met actually in elementary school. Uh, we dated all through high school, all through college. Wow. Um, 
and at this point we had been married for uh eight months and so, needless to say just not just family relationship family business stuff on the line but you've got yeah. a family that you've got your marriage to look out for and your own family to take care of when you walk into the office and say dad one of those two has to go and i guess it's yep. going to be me yep what so, brought it um, to a head um uh, you, you described how often your dad was gone. You described, you know, kind of some of the pressures at work, but what was it that actually brought it to a head and said, no, nope, I ain't doing this? Um, I think there were just, a, there were, I, I, that's a good question, Jeff. I've never been asked that. Um, I think there was just a, um, there were probably three or four different catalysts that happened all at the same time. Um, one was I, um, I wanted to do life differently than he did. I didn't want to live that life. Second was um, I felt a calling to to something um, different that I wanted to live life differently. I didn't know what that was though. I didn't know if it was ministry or business or whatever. Um, third was we just didn't get along. You know, we we just did not see eye to eye on most of things in life. And so um, you know, literally even you know, just a quick sidebar. You know, it, for my for my bachelor party. You know, he insisted he wanted to he wanted to bring in strippers and the whole nine yards. And I just said, Dad, if you do that, me and my friends, my entire wedding party will walk out because none of us are into that. None of us. And so he couldn't understand that for the life. It caused a huge fight between us to the point that I said, Dad, if you do that, um, we're, we're leaving and you'll be there alone with them. So that's up to you what you want to do. And if you're going to do that, I'd rather you not even come. And so. So when it complete, so that's just one example. And so we had those kinds of headbutts a lot. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, my view of business was I wanted to grow it and see where we could go with it. His was, Hey, if it makes money, you take all the money out and you spend it and you party. That wasn't the way I wanted to do business. And so, so all these things came to a head and I just had it. And so, so literally in that conversation, when I said that, he literally said to me, he said, sit down, right? Big, that's a big guy, played football in college and deep voice. And so, um, so I sat down and he said, actually, he said, I'm leaving. And he meant it. And he divorced my mom and he moved to Florida. And on the way out the door, he signed the business over to me. Yeah, hold on. When he said, I'm leaving, just for all of the listeners who are driving right now and missed that statement, when what he meant was, I'm not leaving the business. I'm leaving everything behind. Explain that part one more time. He meant, he said, when he said he's leaving, he meant I'm leaving the business. I'm leaving your mom. I'm leaving you. I am leaving your little brother. My middle brother went with him. Really? Mm -hmm. When did you, okay. So this, this part blows my mind. In fact, as I was learning a little bit about you, Matt, I was sitting there reading this saying the the amount of courage that it takes for you to walk in the door. I, I mean, there's plenty of sons that have issues with their dad and dads that have issues with their sons and they kind of work through it. But the amount of courage that it takes to stand up to your father morally, to stand up to your father's business principles, to basically say, hey, if we're going to do uh, business this way, I'm out. That takes great courage. But then to learn in the process that I've got an entire, that he's got an entire separate life that he's been living, that part blows me away. So would you explain that to the listeners for just a minute? Sure. Um, sure. When, when he left over the course of the next, let's just say six months, it was nine to, it was between three and six months. 
I began to uncover one thing after another. The first one that hit me was I had suppliers that threatened to th that, that threatened to uh, not not supply anymore because they said we owed money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I can't find anything that we owe you money. And so they began to send me invoices and statements. And I'm like, what? Where did the money go? Because I showed it all paid in the system. Sure. Well, I I found checks that were voided, and then he oh, wrote man. personal checks, and so. So that led me to uncover, it's like, okay, where's all this money going? And so then that led me to, oh, wait, it's all going to Florida. It's like, okay, so what else is in Florida besides this business? Oh, we've got a mistress. Okay, great. Oh, and there's question about, you know, one of the other kids that, you know, is there, you know, don't know, don't know. I won't even speculate because that's not right. I, I don't know for sure. Um, but found out that there was actually two businesses. There was a, uh, a yacht. There was a um, house on oh, the water. There smoke. was this, there was this. And it was a lifestyle that could not be maintained by our business because in a good year, the business would make maybe 300,000, but not to maintain that kind of lifestyle and maintain um, a family in a different state. And so basically all the money was, was siphoned out of, out of the company in Indiana to try to maintain a lifestyle down there that was not sustainable. How long, when you started digging, how long did you realize this had been going on? Um, well, it's one of those things I, the more I uncovered, I just, it's one, you, you just keep digging and you find more and you find yeah, more and, and you more find you more. Dig, the, the uglier it gets, right? It, uglier it got. Yeah. It was years. It was years. So and by the time, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking you started to describe 13 years old and dad leaves for a week out of the month, then two weeks a month, then three weeks a month, then a month at a time. And then pretty soon he's gone in Florida a whole lot more than he is back in the, in Indiana. And I'm wondering at 13, 14, 15 years old, what's going on down in Florida. So I'm just trying to figure out for the audience right now, how old are you when you figure this part out? Because there's a, you know, dad's, uh, added the dad's lifestyle and his, uh, you know, he's erratic by the time you're 13. When, how old were you when you uncovered all this? Um, well, I didn't uncover the depth of it until I was in the I was in the saddle of the business, and at that time I was twenty three, twenty four. Um, that's when I began to under the depth. Um, we had begun to question, probably when I was in college. Um, you know, he and I had a very, probably the last very honest conversation he and I had before the day I resigned. I was eighteen, sophomore in college, and. Um, I was, he said something to me, just he and I, and he said something to me about, well, I, I confronted him about how much time he was gone and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and he said, well, I, I did this for you kids and blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And, and finally I just said, you never gave me a choice because had you given me a choice, I would have chosen to have a dad, not all the stuff that you've supplied. That's a, that's a comment right now that I hope lots of parents who are working their fingers to the bone, trying to afford some nice Christmas gifts, heard reverberating off of you right now, like, hey, the stuff is not what your child needs as much as you being around them and working 80 hours a week just to provide the stuff is not making up for the time that you're not with them. So man, this is it, it gets, it, your story goes from bad to ugly, but now you've inherited a business that's basically, uh, you know, in shambles and a father who just bolted on you and your mother and left for his alternate life down in Florida. 
And man, I can't help but think, Matt, at this point, guys are going to just, most guys are going to declare bankruptcy. They're going to wash their hands of it. They're going to walk away from all of it. What do you do next? So um, I unfortunately began, I kept uncovering, um, as you said, it went from bad to worse. So the next thing I uncovered were two of our properties um, had underground storage tanks that were leaking and polluting neighboring properties. Oh so my goodness. The, uh, the EPA gets a little grumpy yeah, about that. I was going to say the government likes to hear that, right? This is a oh, yeah. very expensive fix. Yeah, with it is. money and that so, you don't um, have because you still owe suppliers. Exactly. And so when they came basically saying, hey, you got to clean this up or we're going to shut you down. Literally, I got to the point of saying, here's the keys. Here's the deed. It's yours. I can't clean it up. I don't have any money. You can sue me all you want. You're not going to get a dime because I don't have anything. And so and they actually took them. So that settled that. But then the other one, the last one and the big one was, is that withholding tax wasn't paid for a year. And the IRS will have their money. And yes, so and, and they don't care who's sitting in the chair. Right. With interest yep. and penalties too. Yep. And they don't care who's sitting in the chair and they don't care who did it. They just, they don't care who did it. They just care who's sitting in the chair now. Yeah. And, um, and so when that one hit, um, literally I was, I became, um, I began to, I stopped sleeping. I began to experience acute anxiety, panic attacks. I didn't know any of this terminology. I didn't realize it, but I was spiraling into a deep depression. And to the point then about six months into it, was the first time that I didn't get out of bed and, um, and I didn't get out of bed for days. And, um, and I tried to, and then finally, you know, I, I tried to fake being sick. You know, I was newly married. I didn't know what it was to be a husband. Um, you know, I, I thought that to be a husband because I didn't have a great example. And so I thought to be a husband, I had to be macho and protect my wife from all this stuff. And, you know, my wife years later said that she knew that there were problems, but she felt like I was inside of a glass house. And she was on the outside looking in so she could see the stress, she could see the anxiety, she could see that people were upset, but she couldn't hear anything. So she didn't know the details. And, you know, and that illustration, honestly, it, it's, I never, I never forgot it. Obviously, I know it now, what, 20, uh, 20 some odd years later, um, because I realized that, that when she shared that, I realized I not only um, didn't serve her well, but I actually shut her out and, you know, and that could have really damaged our relationship going for, it did damage our relationship. It took years of counseling um, for us to rebuild. And I'm so glad that we went through that experience, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was tough, man. And I, it got to a point, the depression kept getting worse and um, it got to a point then where I became suicidal. And I, I want to point out at this point, not, uh, none of this is your own doing. You inherited, and I'm using the word inherited literally and figuratively right now. Your father passed all of this on to you um, and then bolted and left you with it. And now you're the one in the leader seat, as you just said, and all of the pressure or the phrase that I'd like to use, uh, the burden of leadership is heavy on your shoulders Sure, man. Yes. Um, I can understand why you would say maybe it just be be easier. It would be quicker. Let me put it this way: if I just ended it all. Unfortunately, that was the thought. I didn't see any way out. What changed? What stopped you from doing that? Because there are, are uh, countless examples of guys in your situation that went through with it. Um, honestly, the only thing I can answer to that, Jeff, is that God intervened in just miraculous ways. 
And, you know, the, the first one was um, the day that I was going to do it the night before I actually slept. I hadn't slept at that point in months. Um, I woke up and I actually went into my office at that point. I hadn't been in my office. This now would have been. Um, so I think I stopped getting out of bed just before Thanksgiving of 97. And I didn't go back into my office until March of 98. And so um, when I got into my office, so literally, you know, we're we're floundering. I don't even know how the business somehow still maintained um, while I was out. My I had hired my mom, and she she was basically stuck trying to figure all this out while I was gone. Um, she knew I was sick, but she um, she didn't know what to do either. And so, um, so literally the day that I was going to do it, I went to my office. So, like I said, first time I've been there in a long time. Sat down at my desk, pulled out three pieces of paper. I was going to write a letter to my wife, my mom, and my littlest, my, my youngest brother. And not one word ever got written because I had a, I had this fleeting thought. Somehow I had a moment of lucidity and I had this thought that when I was a kid, I knew my parents had taken out a life insurance policy on, I knew nothing about it. So rather than calling the life insurance agent who happened, and this is key, happened to be a lifelong friend of my mom's. I drove to his office three blocks away. Now we still were in a small town, a little bigger than where I grew up, but a small town. Um, I walk in his office. He happens to be there. I spend 15, maybe 20 minutes with him trying to see if there's any kind of a suicide clause. I don't remember ever using that phrase. I may have. I don't remember. I left. I drive back to my office 10 minutes away. I may have stopped for a coffee. I can't remember. And I walk in the door. My mom's right there. And she says, hey, let's go out for tea, which is something she and I would do just to get away. And we hadn't done it in a long time at this point. So I said, OK. And she said, I'll drive. And which was weird, but I'm like, okay, fine. You drive. So we're driving toward our regular T spot. And rather than going straight on this one particular street, she turned left as we're turning. I said, well, where are we going? And she said to see a friend. And it wasn't until literally years later that I found out that when I left my life insurance agent's office, he picked up the phone and he called I my mom. I was going to say, I think I know and, how this is developing. Yep. Yep. He called my mom. And he said, her name was Jean. She passed away in 2012, but she, he, he said, Jean, um, I know things are tough. I know that you're, you know, your husband left and you're dealing with all this crap, but she, he said, none of that matters right now because I just saw your son. And if you don't do something today, he will not be here tomorrow. And so she hung up the phone and she called the only other person that she could think of who went something, uh, went through something very similar to what I was going through literally a decade prior. It was almost to the date a decade prior. It was kind of uncanny. She called him up. He happened to be in his office. He's now this very uber successful business person, very wealthy, very powerful in our, in our area. And he literally said, bring him right over. He cleared his calendar. And we, as we're driving on this road, she turns into his office. Now I grew up with his kids. The only, my, my perception of him was that he was wealthy, powerful, and he scared the life out of me. And so as we're pulling in, um, because I didn't have a, you know, I had a very, um, I had a very bad perception of, of strong males. Um, my dad was one and now he was one. And so as I'm pulling into his office, I said, yeah, I'm not going in there. And my mom said, that's okay. He thought you might say that. And he's willing to come sit in the car with us. So we spent six hours that afternoon in his office at the end of that time, Jeff, he never said, I'll take care of it. I mean, he literally, he literally could have stroked a check to cover all of our problems and it would have been like pocket change for him. But he did say this. He said, I will walk with you through this. And he faithfully did. He took me under his wing. First thing he did is he got me help and I, I needed, um, I needed psychiatric care um, and medicine and medication. 
bad. <laughs> and so, so he, as I, as he, as I literally was taken away and not you know, voluntarily taken away, um, he called my wife and she came and she met with him and he basically laid out, okay, listen, you know, there's a problem. It's much worse than you think it is. And so he actually met with her and then he literally took her to the place where I was. And then I was able to be reunited with her. Um, but literally I was taken off the grid for nine months. Yeah. You were getting some inpatient care basically is what, what was happening. Yep. Man, the fact that this guy would clear his calendar for six hours on no notice to spend time with you itself is amazing. But then this tells you a lot about this kind of guy that he says, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to walk with you all the way through it. And I'm not going to walk away from you kind of like dad did. Man, yeah. that man that you're describing is incredible. Everybody yeah. needs a guy or a gal like that in their life. Oh, my. Yeah. To the point, Jeff, that years later when I sold the business, I went to work for that man. Sure, of course. If he's that <laughs> kind of person, a human being, yep. then you can expect he'll be the kind of boss that anybody would want to work for. I'd go yep. work for a guy like that. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, can we talk about the burden of leadership. The phrase that your wife said to you was the glass house. Mm. And um, man, I've done a little bit of leading in my days, you have led, um, and you've led business and led people. And now as a, you know, kind of uh, a speaker and, uh, you know, an author, you lead leaders. So I want to talk for just a second about the challenges, the some of the struggles that go along with leadership. I think a lot of times people that have never stepped into a, a significant leadership role, they look at it from the outside and they say, oh, it would be cool to have all of that responsibility and all those people that are you know, listening to you. But they don't realize that comes along with leadership is a lot of pressure, a lot of demands. And I think your wife nailed it with this language of the glass house. So um, when I teach leadership now, I describe the burden of leadership. I call it a terrible privilege. I really do believe that it's an amazing privilege to be able to influence people and to make their life better. But there is something terrible about it when that kind of responsibility is on your shoulders. And what you stepped into in a leadership role was not just high demand, high pressure. I got bills to pay and no money to pay them, but I'm also following behind a father who's been living this alternate life. And, you know, everything that I've seen growing up has not been a good example. So how did you, where did you finally get to the point that you felt comfortable opening up to, you know, your wife, opening up to your mom, opening up to this mentor of yours, and saying, man, I, I can't do it alone. I need some help. Yeah, great question. You know, and it's, Jeff, I love your 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 terrible privilege um, way to describe it. I've often described it as it's one of life's greatest honors and one of life's greatest burdens um, to be in leadership because you're responsible for other people. And so I, I think um, for me, Jeff, it's, you know, the first nine months literally was spent in just rebalancing my, the chemicals in my brain that were so out of whack, you know, getting to the point I could sleep again, getting to the point where I wasn't having panic attacks and getting to the point where I didn't think the world was just crushing in on me. From that point forward, then um, we were with a counselor, my wife and I with a counselor, the business restarted. And okay, um, hold on for a second. You went to counseling yep. 
separately, you and your wife, or you and your wife went to counseling together? So for the first nine months, I went alone. A lot of it was um, um, psychotherapy, um, yeah. uh -huh. helping me just deal with some of my some of the basic issues, sure. I guess. And then she joined me when we started to transition out of that. And then uh -huh. we together then we were in counseling for six years um, every All week. Right. And every week um, for and six that, years. All right. Every week for six years. Yep. It was the greatest investment we've ever made in our marriage. Um, and I mean that sincerely. In fact, I never I never encourage people to go in any kind of debt, especially credit card debt. But I have told people if your marriage is suffering, it's a whole lot cheaper for you to go into credit card debt than it is to go through a divorce. Um, <laughs> so um, but and it's, it's worth it, quite frankly. I mean, but that helped us. Uh, I, I've often said that that helped us restart without actually having to restart. And uh, it's a huge blessing. Unbelievable. But um, but as I started to get healthier, probably past that year mark is when I began to talk about um, with my with my wife, with my mom, with my little brother, to some degree, he was very young at the time, um, what I was what was going through my head, what was happening. And then it was until I would say it was until years later that I told my story publicly. It was probably 10 years later before I told my story publicly. Um, but as I entered back into the business and um, I, I realized something really quickly. Number one, and I, I don't even, like I said, Jeff, I don't even know where this came from other than it must have just been divine, but I just knew it intuitively. I cannot, and I mean cannot, I cannot do this alone. Um, I need to have people around me and be mentors, be influences, be voices in my life to help me. Because the one thing they don't teach you, two things they don't teach you in business school. One, they don't teach you how to handle a business that's failing. And they don't teach you how to scale a business. We started back over with three people that grew then to a little under 200 people by the time I sold it. And, um, and so, and I, I didn't know, I didn't know about leadership. I didn't know how to lead people. Here I was, as the business began to grow, I had to hire people. I was 25, 26 years old, hiring people that were twice my age. <laughs> and yep. you can't lead somebody twice your age, like you lead a peer or somebody younger than right. you. That's right. And so, Literally, I started reaching out to, I, I just made a list. I went through, okay, who are all the people I know in my life that are leaders in business and nonprofit, government, academia, you name it. I made a list. I had probably, I think, 40 or 50 people on this list. And I went one by one. I call them up. Can I buy you lunch? Can I buy you coffee? Can I buy you a beer? Can I buy you anything? I just want to spend an hour with you. One hour is all I ask. Um, I didn't have any money. The business had just restarted. And so I said, you know, I, I would have offered to pay for the time, but I said, please, can I just buy you lunch? And I'd, off, I'd ask them three questions. One. Um, what is the number one lesson I'm, you've I'm learned as a leader? I'm going to write these down. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to okay. write these down. Number one, lesson learned number one, as a leader. The key lesson you've learned as a leader. Number two, what are the questions I need to be asking as a leader that I'm not asking? And then three is what book should I be reading? And, and those are the, those are the key questions. I would often get, you know, 10 lessons learned, not just one. Um, they'd often give me a whole list of questions that I need to be asking people, which I would then turn right around and ask them those questions. Cause basically I'm like, tell <laughs> yeah. me what questions. Okay, great. I'm going to ask you. Um, and then they give me usually one to three books to read. And, you know, you can see the bookshelf behind me. This is one of, I think 10 bookshelves I have here in my office. I've read every one of those books. Most of them are on leadership. Now some are fun books, but most of them are leadership because I needed to know how to be a leader because I didn't know. I just didn't know. Um, you know, my first foray into leadership and leading a business crashed and burned in a big time way. Um, you know, people lost their jobs because of that. And I, yes, to your point, it wasn't necessarily my fault, but I went down with that ship and, um, and it hurt bad. 
And I didn't want to see that happen again. And I wanted to learn how to lead well. And I had to learn how to lead generationally above me and then eventually generationally below me. And that's challenging. Yeah. I want to compliment you, man. The strongest leaders that I know, even some guys and gals that are just dripping wet with innate leadership talent, they were born with it. The strongest leaders that I know, like you, have this insatiable desire to learn more, to understand leadership better, and they never stop growing and they never stop getting better as a leader. Um, so the fact that you had you were willing to take out that list, go sit down and start talking to people. And you're just basically taking a master's degree in leadership with conversations over coffee or over lunch is brilliant. But the strongest people that I know, almost every one of them have gone through pretty significant counseling. And it's because of the counseling that they are now much stronger. We've talked about counseling a lot on this uh, show because we deal with people when they're at their worst moments in their life and they'll describe how it was weeks or months or some in some cases years of counseling that helped them get healthy and now they're far stronger than they were um before this uh you know before the 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 tragedy and i i kind of look at counseling um for all of those big macho guys and gals out there that feel like i've got the world under control and I don't need any help as a leader. I don't need counseling as an individual. I want to tell them that's this is this is the guaranteed recipe for disaster. No one is strong enough to handle it all on their own. But secondly, counseling, in my opinion, is the same thing as putting a cast on a broken bone. Why wouldn't you get it healthy and make it stronger? And after the bone heals, it's often strongest at the spot where it was broken in the past because it's healed up stronger there than the rest of the bone. So for the guy or the, the guy or the gal that's listening right now, that's really wrestling with some things in life, don't be ashamed. Don't hesitate. Go get the help that you need. You will be better off after the fact. You'll thank God for it, or to use Matt's words, the best investment that he's ever made in his marriage was the counseling that he did. Um, you'll be better off in the long run for it. Matt, you, you started to learn a thing or two about leading, and then you started to help others learn a thing or two about leading. So uh, describe for us uniquely normal and what it is and what you're doing with it. No, I'd love to. I want to piggyback just briefly on what you just said. I, I, I don't know. I would love to give credit for this, but I, I don't know who said it. And shame on me for not knowing. But I heard this phrase about leaders just recently, and it goes something like this. Leaders who can't be questioned do questionable things. And, and that's why it is so, so very important. You know, I have been a big promote, proponent of having mentors and having um, and having people that uh, people that you're accountable to in life. And, and I, I have most of my life, I have had accountability or a mentor or a counselor or all three <laughs> at the same time. Um, but there's been brief periods where I have had gaps. And in those gaps, I will tell you, um, I have suffered. I have made very questionable decisions because I don't have that wise counsel. You know, I'm a big believer that there's counsel in the, there's, there's wisdom in the there's counsel. Wisdom of many. In counselor. Big yeah. 
And so, um, so I love what you just said. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things I'm going to jump, I'll come back to your question. I promise when I, when I launched this business, I had just come out of, um, so when I sold the business, I spent 12 years then in private equity. That's where I really fell in love with equipping leaders and uh, many reasons why. Then I left and I really floundered for two years trying to figure out okay, what am I going to do? I didn't know. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. I just knew I was done in private equity for many reasons why. And, um, and so when I decided to launch this business, a dear friend, mentor of mine, he's 84 years old now, and he says he has dyslexia, so he's only 48, um, but whatever. And so, he, uh, but uh, he, he called it. me up. He called me up and he said, hey, Matthew, like, let's meet for a beer. I'm like, okay. His name is Chuck. I said, okay, Chuck, let's do it. And so we met and he says, I understand you're uh, starting a new business. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, don't do it alone. And I said, Okay. Um, I'm bootstrapping this puppy, man. I don't have investors, you know, I don't have the big, uh, you know, the big Silicon Valley, you know, type cash flow or investor backing. So this is me. And so I, I said, I can't afford to hire anybody. So what do you recommend? And he said, put together a board of advisors. He said, find four or five people that, you know, three things. One, you can trust. Two, you know, love and care about you. And three, will speak truth to you, even when, or especially when it hurts. And I said, okay. And so I asked five people, one of them is my wife. And I asked them, will you serve? Will you, will you give me, will you invest in me a half a day, a quarter? I can't pay you. Um, but will you give me a half a day, a quarter, um, so that I can talk to you about personal and in and, and business and everything to a person. And, 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 uh, this Chuck, my 48, 84 year old mentor, um, he, uh, he has said, now you'll be the first to serve, right? And he's, yeah, of course. So he's, he's serving. To a person though, Jeff, they all said the same thing. If I agree to do this, there's nothing off limits. Nothing. We're going to talk to you about personal, business, your thought life, your marriage, your kids, um, how you spend your money. We're going to talk to you about everything. And like, it's the only way I'll do it. To a person, they all said the same thing. And Jeff, I will tell you that that group of people um, we've now been together for almost um, two and a half years. That group of people has saved me from going off the rails more than once. They have they have not allowed me to quit. I've tried to quit three times. They won't let me do it. Um, <laughs> so you get down, man. You get frustrated. Um, and and uh, but having that group with me has been unbelievable. And so um, you know, you mentioned that your listeners are leaders. And so if 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 your listeners can you know benefit from that. That is, I, I, I recommend that now when I teach or I train or I speak, that's one of my favorite things to talk about just because I've experienced firsthand the power of it. And so, um, so now to your question, exactly. I, um, I became passionate about equipping leaders when I was in the trenches working with leaders. So my, one of my things that I did in private equity was, um, I was given the honor actually of, of traveling around the world, looking for business investments. And so when I was doing that, um, more than not, more often than not, I would have an opportunity to meet with the business owner, CEO, whatever, oftentimes there are family businesses. And I began hearing this story and I didn't hear it once or twice or three times. I heard it a hundred times and it went something like this very quickly. It was, I sacrificed everything to build this thing. And what this, this thing was this business and the sacrifice usually meant their marriage and their kids. I sacrificed everything to build this thing that I thought would give me satisfaction um, purpose, meaning, and flexibility, income, whatever it is that they thought that they were after. 
Now, here they were. Most of them were in their 60s and most of them were male. But so I did have some female and I had some even younger. Um, but they would often say, and usually it was with emotion and with tears either in their eyes or coming down their cheeks. Here I am. I have everything I thought I wanted except for what I really wanted. And that is my marriage and my kids. You know, many of them were on their second, third marriages or divorced, or if they were married, they were living separate lives. Many of them were estranged from their kids, hadn't even met grandkids. Um, and I, I kept hearing the same story over and over. And basically it was, I don't want this thing anymore. Buy it, take it. I'm done. And we did, we bought many of those businesses. And so, um, but in, in the back of mind, I'm like, okay, something's gotta be done. Something has to be said. And, and that's what prompted me to write my first book, Unsatisfied, When Less Is More, to tell that story. Because I don't want leaders to, I want leaders to stop sacrificing what is so near and dear, even though they may not know it at the time. Because when you get to the end of your life, you know, it's true what they say, you know, it doesn't matter how many zeros you check in the account at the end of your life. What matters is your relationships that you still have. And so, um, so I became passionate about that. And then I also became passionate because I got to, because I got to work in so many different businesses along the way, I saw the difference between healthy leadership and unhealthy leadership and, and, and the difference it made in the people's lives inside those organizations. Because if you're an unhealthy leader, chances are you're going to create a toxic culture. If you have a toxic culture, you're going to have people that are, they're basically traumatized. And, and, and I hated that. And then I saw health, I saw the example of healthy leadership and how people thrived and they began and you could just see a totally different um, thing type happening, right? You just saw a different way of living. And it's like, okay, I need to capture that and train that. And, and I had an opportunity, you know, when, it, when we built our business, we were very intentional about um, how we invested in our people, develop people. It's like, okay, we need to translate that and we need to tell others um, to do the same. So that's what I focus on now is helping leaders build intentionally build flourishing organizations, organizations where people can thrive and flourish themselves. When you say you intentionally do uh, help with that, how do you do that? What does uniquely normal do that helps leaders? Um, so a few things. One, we um, provide resources. So I've written two books. Um, I just started writing the third. Uh, we'll see when that one gets done. Um, training and workshops and coaching. Um, coming alongside leaders and their teams. Um, I often, when I work with a team, I love to start with the, you know, I'll, I'll find any way into the organization I can, but eventually I need to talk with the CEO because if the CEO is not on board with building a culture, because if you want to build a healthy culture, it takes intentionality. You're not going to, you're going to have a culture regardless. So why not build the one you want? Um, and so coming alongside the leader and his or her team and, investing in them first. So helping them understand who they are. So you start with emotional intelligence. Who am I? What am I here for? What's my purpose in, in, you know, in, in what's my, um, what's my identity. So we start with a lot of, of self, um, self-awareness and then we move to others awareness. And then we move into, uh, things like, you know, how do you engage in conflict in a healthy way? You know, how do you intentionally develop people? So I talk about three pillars, empathy, um, empowerment and excellence. And there's different different workshops and different uh, structures under each of those to help an organization build, become a flourishing organization where others can flourish along the way. Matt, in, in graduation ceremonies all over the world, they have those students in the stands and the families in the surrounding the platform. And they're all telling everybody the same message for decades or maybe even for centuries 
and it's about how to be successful. You just used a word that doesn't get tossed around at graduation ceremonies. It actually doesn't get used in leadership circles as much as it should, and I really wish it would. You described a little bit of healthy leadership, and then you used the word flourishing. So I want to ask a question. Didn't have a chance to let you know about this at a time, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. The average commencement speech tells the students, this is what successful looks like, but uniquely normal, your company is saying, let me tell you what a flourishing leader looks like. And those two things are not necessarily the same thing. So would you describe the difference between successful as a leader, air quotes, and flourishing as a leader? What's the difference in your vocabulary? Happy to, um, because that was the the key differentiator uh, when I was writing the, my first book between thriving and flourishing. Thriving is um, what our society says is success, where you are making money, that you have discretionary income, where you have title, you have position, you have power, flexibility, you know, whatever you, you have. You know, you have the American dream, so to speak, and you can afford that. The American dream um, is killing. What what I heard you say is when you talk to leaders, the American dream was was a when the, was a nightmare when they when they finally achieved it. Yep, exactly. Interestingly enough, I didn't mention this, but I had the same story told to me in from businesses in 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 uh, Europe, and get this, Africa. So two places I didn't expect to hear Europe maybe, um, but Africa no way, but it did. So. Um, that's so thriving. I, the people I was talking to, man, they were thriving, you know, by all intents and by all measure of, of, of societal standards, they were thriving. They had reached the pinnacle. success, basically the success uh, definition of success that you hear at the graduation ceremony, right? Yep, exactly. And um, but yet they were absolutely miserable. They were broken people. And, and it did not have to be that way. And so um, the difference between that and flourishing is this. And I did, a very, I did an extensive word study on those two words. Thriving is a focus inward. It's a focus on me. It's a focus on accumulation of wealth, power, money, possessions, whatever it is you think that will bring you lasting satisfaction and fill this, this hole in our lives that we're, we all have to try to find purpose and meaning and why we're here. Um, and so that's thriving. Flourishing is a focus out. It's a focus on something bigger than me. It's realizing that I'm here for more than just accumulation for me. So it's a, it's a recognition and an acting out of that recognition of, you know what, I've been given, I need to give. I've been invested in, I need to invest out. I have, um, I have been blessed, I need to bless others. And it's realizing that I'm a part of a bigger narrative than just my life. And I need to take that into consideration and live my life intentionally. <clears throat> and that was the big differentiator for me was the word intentional. That's why I keep using it is because when I was talking to these other leaders, wonderful, wonderful people, don't get me wrong. Um, I kept getting the sense of how did I get here? How did this happen? Well, it's because you didn't stop at some point and think about intentionally think about what really matters to me and then living aligned to those values and to those things that I say really matter to me in my life. And so, you know, to your point, Jeff, if I was going to give a commencement ceremony speech, I would talk about 
pursue that which will bring you lasting satisfaction and deep joy and deep meaning and guaranteed it will not be in money because you can never have money enough. It will not be in power or possessions or a title because all those things fade away. It's fleeting. It will right? be in it's relationships. Here it's, it's here for a moment. And it's gone forever. Gone. Right. And so that's the biggest difference is understanding basically who am I and what's my role in the greater narrative and intentionally living my life in a way where when I get to the end, in fact, I talk about, I use this illustration in my book where I believe that, you know, I don't know how it all works, but God and his sovereignty has somehow given us a pen and we're writing the story of our life. And if you look at the, you analyze your story and you say, okay, if I continue to write my story the way I'm writing it, it's going to lead to a certain ending. Now, is that ending the ending that you want? You know, if I had asked these business, asked these, asked more than one of these business leaders, at what point did you realize the story you were writing wasn't the story you wanted? And they're like literally within the last, usually it was in the last year or two. And so by that point, it was too late. And so um, many times it was too late. So my, my, my challenge to people, in fact, it's an exercise in the back of the book, is take a look at your story. If you don't like the ending that you're writing, Put a period down, turn the page, and start writing the story of your life that will have the ending that you so desire. And I'm telling you what, it's not if you if you value your family, if you value your marriage, your kids, if you value having time with them, and you're working 80 or 100 hours a week so you can have a bigger bank account, those two don't align. That's just one example. I had a lot of, a chance to do a lot of cool stuff, see a lot of cool things, uh, you know, meet a lot of cool people. While I was serving in the military, when I retired mm, from the U.S. So cool. Army, I stood in front of some of my greatest friends and I said, of all the stuff that I've done, all the stuff that I've been, all the places that I've been, all the people that I've met, the thing that I am most proud about, and to this day, I meant every word of it, the thing that I am most proud about is that I'm still married to my high school sweetheart. I have a great relationship with all of our children, and it came at a great sacrifice and I would make that sacrifice all over again because all of the junk that I that other people chased in the military in business in sports you name it they chased the accolades and all of the promotions and the rank and the power and the money and all of those things when you get to the end of it it's all worthless it's literally meaningless yeah you've got it all and it doesn't mean anything to you so I stood before my friends and my, you know, my closest, uh, you know, the people that are closest to me. And I said, the, the one thing that I take the greatest pride in is my relationship with my family. And it came at an incredible cost and I would do it all over again because that's really all that matters. Wow. Um, I'm saying Dude, I got that chills, because, man. That's awesome. Well, I'm saying that because I think you're talking to a lot of listeners right now as they're driving, they're watching this on YouTube and they're asking the question, man, what am I really chasing after right now? Am I chasing Amen. after the next big promotion? Because I think that's going to make me happy. Am I chasing after a big pay raise? That way I could buy a bigger car that takes more money to insure and to drive. I can buy a bigger house, which is more work and it takes more money to take care of. Am I just chasing after bigger because I think that's going to uh, fulfill me and then become one of those many people that Matt talked to that get to the point that I got it all and I'm miserable and it, mm -hmm. none of it filled me up. None of it gave me what I thought it was going to give me. 
maybe just a subtle but a huge shift in perspective is to decide what's really most important and then i'm going to start chasing after that and i'm going to chase after something that's that's going to i'm going to chase after something that's going to lead me fulfilled for the rest of my life actually i'm going to chase after something that's going to lead me fulfilled for eternity that's what i'm going to chase after yep and that's ultimately how that hole in our soul is filled right there yeah Yep. Matt, I could talk to you for five more hours about this, man, because what you just described a few minutes ago is exactly where my heart is, exactly where I hope all of the listeners to this podcast are headed. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have that kind of time. And like we said at the beginning, it is the insanely busy holiday season right now. So before we wrap up, um, you've got some books out there. You've got a company that you've started. There are people that have heard a little bit about you and they're thinking, I want to know more about Matt. So where can they find out more about you, man? Uh, website is a great place to start, www.uniquelynormal.com. And um, my email is matt, M-A-T-T, at uniquelynormal.com. So either way, my website talks about both of my books and there's links to um, both Amazon and then directly to my publisher uh, to get uh, the second book in particular, but um, but both are available there. And there's also more information about um, the business and what we do and, and those kinds of things. Love to engage with any of your listeners, Jeff. Be a, it'd be an honor. We'll put links to your website. Uh, we'll, we'll mention, we'll remind everybody about your email address. It's very gracious of you um, to tell the audience about that. And for the listeners out there in the audience, like we normally do, we're going to give away a digital copy of one of Matt's books. I'll tell you at the end of this episode, how you can get one free. Matt, thanks for being on this episode with me, but more than anything else, man, thank you for helping people figure out how they can beat depression, beat the pressures that go along with leading and stop trying to succeed and start flourishing in life. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. It's been an honor. It truly has been an honor. Hey, I hope that Matt's words are echoing in your ear right now like they are mine. There are basically people out there all over the planet that are chasing success. And for them, success is all about me and about what I can get. And then there's some really satisfied people out there that are actually flourishing. And they're flourishing because they're living for more than what they can just get for themselves. Maybe this episode was a wake-up call for you. Stop chasing success and start actually being satisfied with your life. Start flourishing by pursuing something that's really going to satisfy you later on in life or maybe even satisfy you for eternity. Thanks, Matt, for those powerful words during this frantic holiday season. You heard me talk about Matt's book that we're going to give it away. Well, somebody who's part of the unbeatable army is going to get a free digital copy of Matt's book. And all you have to do to become part of the unbeatable army is just simply go over to unbeatablearmy.com. It's the email address that we, it's the email list that we send people content. I send them articles throughout the week more information about the guests and it's totally free so if you want to become part of the unbeatable army and maybe win a free copy of matt's book 
go over to unbeatablearmy.com. If you are just learning about this podcast for the first time and you like what you heard today, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or subscribe to this on YouTube. And for those of you who are already subscribing and listening to these episodes, if you haven't already started doing it, why don't you follow us on social media? Search for at Unbeatable Podcast and you're going to find Desiree Loudermilk there who is our fan of the week this week. Desiree, thank you for being so engaged. Thank you for being part of some of the greatest audience on earth. I hope that Matt's episode has encouraged you and I'll see you right back here next time. God bless. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.